Amen. Please turn in your Bibles and remain standing, if you are standing, to 2 Peter chapter 3. I will be reading from verse 1 to verse 13. However, I will be focusing especially on verses 13 and fo- or rather 11 and following going to verse 13. So that is 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was diluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, But according to his promise, we're awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. For about a month now we have been asking and answering questions about the kingdom of righteousness in 2 Peter chapter 3. Almost all these questions have been how questions. I'll give some of those questions here. How will Christ's kingdom come? How long until Jesus will come back? How will the world end? How does God relate to time? And how do we relate to his coming? Let me answer these briefly by way of review. The righteousness of God in the kingdom of righteousness, the future fulfillment of the prophecy of a kingdom of God, is fulfilled in, as we hear in 1 Peter 1.11, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we have it here in verse 13, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The kingdom has already come in the church. And although we are part of this kingdom, it is presently hidden to this world so that there is a greater, visible to all, manifestation of it in the future, which Peter says will come through the cleansing work of fire on earth. 
We do not know the exact time of his coming, as God is indeed outside time, and it produces no difficulty for us to say these things. But he will indeed come suddenly, unlooked for, like a thief in the night, and will melt the world in his own judgment fire. So that we've seen, especially in 2 Peter 2, that we are changed by being part of this kingdom righteousness through union to Christ. We are changed beings now with a divine nature that is part of that future kingdom. That is how we relate to the coming kingdom. And we partake of this new kingdom nature by the grace of God, which we show by our repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We partake of the righteousness righteousness of that righteous kingdom to come in Christ's righteousness, that is, in union with Christ, who is righteous. But Christ, in fact, has not yet descended on earth. He has not yet come. This is a fact we must deal with, and Peter does here. How is it that we are part of this future kingdom of light while the rest of the world is in darkness? By the righteous end-time judgment being placed upon Christ on the cross for his elect, yes, we have been entered into this kingdom. However, now we understand better how we are here through Christ, we ought to turn to the why of the kingdom, which Peter turns to especially in verses 11 and following in our text. Why are we the church here in the midst of a world of so much darkness and sin? What is in the plan of God to keep us here? Especially, why are we, future citizens of a kingdom of righteousness, not simply transported to heaven immediately upon faith? Why are we here? God has the power to do these things. So from the how of the kingdom, let us see what Peter says on the why of the kingdom in this text. First, to understand the why, let's understand a bit Of the what. Let's understand what life in our age is like. How does Peter characterize it? In two words, in fact, in verse 12. Waiting and hastening. What does God mean when he says, of us and our actions in relation to that plan of the will of God? Verse 11 and 12. What sort of people you ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? It means that we are to be a people of mercy in this last age, this age of repentance and faith, as God told us in verse 8 already. We, again, verse 12, wait for the justice of God. We do not produce it, brothers and sisters. That is, when we judge others, and we must judge in some way, we judge according to how God has judged us in this age with mercy, with pity, and long-suffering. As he says in verses 9 and 15, that word long-suffering is translated here as him being patient towards us. I enjoy long-suffering better because he indeed has to suffer us in our sin. But why do I use these three words, which is long-suffering, pity, and mercy? Because that is what's contained in the word patience in verses 9 and 15. God's patience can also 
be translated long-suffering, as we've said, and has been defined before as God's love toward those who deserve punishment. That is, his long-suffering is an aspect of his love, which is God's love to those who deserve punishment. What is this beside a type of God's love and mercy, this long-suffering? The only thing which long-suffering differs from mercy is that in mercy, added to long-suffering is pity for the sinner in their consequences of sin. Is this not what God is saying, as we've seen already in that mysterious and wondrous verse 9, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, mercy, pity upon the sinner in their consequences of sin. And for some, if they do not repent, pity, but not eternal salvation. What is verse 9 but pity for the sinner and love towards those who deserve punishment? While we wait here below, brothers and sisters, while we wait for Jesus to return, we judge in accordance with the way that we have been judged in Christ Jesus. With mercy, pity, and long-suffering patience, we wait, but for what? The coming judgment of God. The coming judgment of God. Only in this age is there mercy, because soon there will be no need for mercy at the coming judgment of God. There will only be the pure in the new heavens and the new earth, and those who have shunned the pardon of God and shunned the mercy of God in repentance who are eternally in hell. We wait until that day. The judgment of that day has been set to a later day than was expected, perhaps, And in this age, we are called to be like Christ in mercy. For today is the day of opportunity for mercy. These days alone, the days of God's patience and long-suffering, these days alone are the days of opportunity that quickly close in judgment. We wait until mercy is indeed extinguished in the flames of judgment. And we give mercy in this time of mercy in this kingdom of mercy and grace. That is what we are left on this earth for. Among sinners, to be merciful as God is merciful. We wait for God's judgment day, and so we are merciful because he judges on that judgment day, and we are merciful in these days, our days. Yes, as he says in verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? As Paul says in Galatians 6.10, a similar verse, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What other day of opportunity is there, brothers and sisters? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, Behold, now, these days... It is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As we wait for the final justice of God to descend upon the earth, we live our lives as lives of mercy, just as God has purposed for these days of salvation, for these days of his merciful, long-suffering patience. As we see this in Romans 9, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Have mercy upon him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, now is not the time of righteous retribution against those who sin against God for us or in the believer. Now is the time of mercy and long-suffering towards even the worst evildoers, because this is how our king acts during our own time. So that is the negative meaning of being waiters. We wait for the God's vengeance and take none for ourselves. Now, what is it for the positive meaning of being waiters in Christ? As we wait in darkness, what is our righteousness to be like? To be part of this righteous kingdom in this unrighteous world is not to be self-righteous. Christians alone cannot be self-righteous in the face of sin and sinners because we of all people know we are not self-righteous. That is, we have no righteousness of our own. All of our righteousness is Christ's. The church is not self-righteous, it is Christ-righteous. That is, we never believe we are in ourselves able to be righteous. And even if we could do any righteousness, Jesus has this to say to us, after we have done all, we are still unworthy servants. We Christians cannot be self-righteous, or else we are not Christians. We must be Christ-righteous. And so this is how we relate to the world as waiters. We are righteous, but we are righteous in Christ. And as we have no righteousness in ourselves, we wait for the vengeance of God. And we do not take it upon ourselves. So that when Peter speaks about our lives of holiness and godliness in verse 11, what does this word godliness mean but to be like Christ, the God-man, God-like like Christ, the God-man? It is to be like God in pure conduct. It is to be like Christ in righteousness, to have Christ's righteousness, looking to Christ for our righteousness and taking from Christ how we are to live our lives. This fact, us being Christ-righteous and not self-righteous, makes the church completely different than the world in how we positively act. First, the world always loves and works for its own glory. But now Christians do not love or live for or work for their own glory, but for God's glory and his purposes, which includes their glory indeed. But as Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ righteousness. Second, our mercy and grace also has a basis. The world has no basis for mercy and grace besides that it helps them in their own goals. In fact, to give the mercy that the world desires is to be nothing more than an easygoing, flabby man. To be a man who doesn't care about the law or the laws at all and doesn't care about keeping the laws. The man of the world who has mercy upon himself and others places himself over the law, not under it, and either takes the mantle of God and absolves himself and his fellows of sin, or creates his own law in place of God's law. Mercy without real payment and justice has no basis at all. If we give mercy and grace simply from ourselves, as the world does, without the work of Christ, we are sinning. But no, Christian, you have a basis for your mercy. 
in the work of Christ, who has had mercy and patience upon the whole world by publishing the gospel to each person. As verse 9 says, He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's love creates his mercy. As Ephesians 2 famously says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. God's justice and his mercy upon humanity gives a basis for our own mercy to the world. Christ, although he did not purchase the salvation of those who die in unrepentant sin, still purchased a people, us, to be salt and light and merciful to this world. We are merciful because we allow the Lord to be righteous and allow the Lord to bring vengeance as he has called us to be merciful, and he will bring vengeance. We do not place ourselves over the law, but under Christ. Mercy is to have love and pity towards sinners, especially in the consequences of their sin, just like the Lord. We, the church, are the hands and feet of Christ's mercy in this world, while God's patience lasts towards wickedness in this world, while he loves and sustains those in mercy, those who desire punishment, by desiring their sin, even giving them everything they need to live on this earth, he is merciful. And we, the church, work in mercy. But why work? If God's judgment will come regardless, then why? Why work? Why be merciful? Why do acts of godliness and holiness, even if God does this in merciful patience towards an evildoer? Well, There need be no more reason than God does it, and we are called to it as a new creation. And we will do it as a new creation, as a tree produces fruit of its very nature. But Peter actually gives us an additional reason, and really, another incredible view into the counsel of God. These words are especially good for Calvinists to hear, starting in verse 11, going through verse 12. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting, and now hear this second word, hastening the coming day of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Calvinists here, our actions matter. We ought to remember this. Calvinism is not fatalism. Calvinism says our actions matter, unlike fatalism. We hasten the day. Our acts of godliness, our acts of mercy, and even our private acts of holiness and our private prayers, do they do anything, brothers and sisters? God says through Peter, yes, our prayers hasten the coming day of the Lord. God uses your prayers. God uses, especially as he says here, your holiness, your mercy and grace toward the sinner. God uses it. God uses the holiness of the suffering slave who works in obscurity. All of it brings us closer to the coming day of our Lord. This is the plain teaching of the text. But how can this be? It can only be because God uses our work as secondary causes for his coming. That is, our works are in the secret plan of God already. Our works do not surprise God as if he'll be surprised at the coming of Christ, at the the coming day of Christ by how many good works that we have done. No, God will not be surprised by the day or the hour, but our works still matter, brothers and sisters. Our actions are rewarded with Jesus' coming closer. 
As we should expect, just as every holy action is rewarded with greater communion to God in one way or another, he comes closer. Christian, your actions of mercy and patience and of holiness and of godliness, whatever they are and wherever they are done, matter. They hasten the coming day of the Lord, whether people recognize them or not, which is something that must be emphasized in this world of social media. Whether it is recognized or not, it is blessed. So to answer the question of the start of this sermon, why are you, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, those who love the Lord, why are we still in this world of darkness and sin? Why have we not been transported immediately up into heaven? Why? Because your actions here matter. God is using you in your life to be salt and light to the nations. Although he could have chosen all and done all himself, he chose in his sovereign decree to use us as hands and feet. He chose us that we might be like God in our mercy, our patience, and our love towards sinners. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so are are we to be towards those around us. So, brothers and sisters, do we love like Christ does? Do we have mercy, loving, pity for sinners, for those people around us who make us uncomfortable? Do we have patience and mercy even toward our brothers and sisters? I fear we have very little patience and mercy toward those who are very rich in grace, let alone those who are wretched sinners according to our eyes. But what is God like? Verse 9, God is patient toward you. And he's speaking to, yes, those that he calls beloved here, but also those who are heinous sinners in the body. Those heretics that he, Peter railed against in chapter 2, he said, God is patient toward you. Even you, brothers and sisters, sinners all, if God is loving and shows that love through merciful patience towards sinners when he knows all of their sin, How much more ought we to be patient, merciful, and loving when we don't know the sins of others like he does and we know our own sin? And as we conclude, brothers and sisters, we know our sin. We know that although our works may hasten the day of his coming, this does not mean that our works change or augment the work of Christ, for they are indeed works done in a sinful body. Because... It is according to Peter, because of the finished work of Christ that we work, not the other way around. Because of the coming of Christ, which will destroy the world and remake it, Peter tells us. What lives of holiness and godliness ought you to live? The finished work of Christ pushes us to do work. Our works matter in the plans of God, but God never planned that our works would be included in Christ's finished accomplishment of his salvation. Our works are the result of his works. And we must remember, Christian, that although we are a kingdom of mercy, and we give mercy like the Lord has to us, there is only one who can give eternal mercy and eternal grace. Those outside of Christ have benefits of his mercy. That is, the gospel is proclaimed and he uses us as salt and light, but they do not have his eternal mercy, nor ever his eternal grace if they die in their unbelief. This eternal mercy and eternal grace is a gift of God. 
not a result of works so that no one can boast. Your works matter, but your works, however hard you work, cannot produce grace. God's grace must be given, and before it can be given, it must be accomplished by Christ's death on the cross in his resurrection and newness of life. Indeed, as he calls us here in verse 9, we must repent and believe in Christ for salvation. But remember, once you have repented and believed, that we who are alive in Christ are alive in this world, bent upon destruction, that we might live like Christ and live on earth, hating even the garment stained by, the, by sin, but loving the sinner and having merciful, long-suffering patience and love toward all just as God has had toward the whole world, and especially you and I, brothers and sisters. Let's go to our great God in prayer. O great God and Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, as, Lord, your will is far greater than we could ever think Lord, as you have accomplished your salvation, you have established mercy and grace. You have given us a life that is worthy of living. You have given us work that is great and meaningful. And you have allowed us to be in Christ by your gift of grace. You have changed us from our very nature that we might live in that kingdom of righteousness, that eternal kingdom of righteousness. How can we thank you enough, O Lord? Lord, your ways are unsearchable. We thank you that you are far greater than anything that we think of. Your ways are far greater than anything we can think of. And we only follow after your ways, Lord. We pray that we would be like you in our ways. Lord, that in the justice that you will bring in that last day, that we might live in the light of it that we might be gracious as waiters, those who wait for the coming justice, that we might be just in our actions, that we might be Christ's righteous, and Lord, that we might be merciful and give you vengeance. That is, leave it up to you. We ask, Lord, that in your coming kingdom, that we would be found in it, Lord that you would produce repentance and faith in us in greater and greater measure. Or for those who are here still under your condemnation, the wrath and fire of that great day, we pray, Lord, that they would repent of their vile sin, just as we pray we might, that they might come to you for grace eternal and mercy eternal. Lord, be glorified in these, our works, even though we are in this polluted, sinful world We pray we might be your hands and feet, O Lord, for your glory and yours alone. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.